Well, shall we take our Bibles and go to Exodus chapter 20, where we will finish out our series on the Ten Commandments today. We've been taking one commandment a week and including an intro to the Ten Commandments. That makes this the 11th week. If you need a Bible today, the ushers have Bibles for you. Just raise your hands if you'd like to receive a Bible today. And Exodus 20 is found on page 54 in those Bibles the ushers are handing out. I am going to do my best also to watch the time because we want to conclude our service this morning with uh, sharing communion together. So um, uh, that'll be at the end of the teaching time. But now as we look into this 10th commandment today, here's what I've done. Last night for the Saturday night service, uh, they, uh, I asked them, just kind of actually jokingly, hey, who wants to say the 10 commandments aloud and together without me putting up the commandments on the screens. And, and they took the challenge. I asked the 9 o'clock service. They took the challenge too. You ready for the challenge? Come on, you can do this, right? If you've been here for very long, you know this. But if you haven't, then it's okay. If you're visiting for this, hey, you just applauded me. Now you're going to embarrass me. No, if you're visiting, you, you may not know these. But if you do, great. Say them aloud and together with us. So here we go. Number one. You shall... No... All right, good. Number two, not make for yourself an idol. Good. Number three, now I'm here in NIV and King James at the same time. <laughs> shall not misuse, shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. That's cool. All right. Number four, very good. Remember the Sabbath day. Number five, yeah, it's, it's usually louder on that one. That's good. <laughs> The parents have that one down. Number six, shall not murder. Number seven, oh, busted. I heard steal and I heard adultery. Which is it? It's adultery. All right, you shall not commit adultery. Number eight, there you go. Number, that's stealing. Number eight, number nine. Yeah, there's King James and I be mixed again. False testimony or bearing false witness. That's good. All right. And then finally, number 10. <laughs> I have no idea what you just said. Uh, but, but all right. So that's where we are today. Let me just put it up. Just uh, let me skip through. We are at number 10 today. You shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. All right. Give yourselves a hand. So that was good. Give yourselves a hand. Good job. Good job. All right. Well, this is the consolidation of the 10th commandment, what I have on the screens. But let's look at the actual words a little lengthier in verse 17. Exodus 20, verse 17. This is what it says. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to to your neighbor. So the key word, of course, in this 10th commandment is the word covet, and it means literally to desire enviously that which belongs to another. And that is the focal point of this 10th commandment. Let's pray and then we'll dive into our study. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for these commandments, and we take them to heart because we know that even though we're not saved by the law, you have given us your moral code that we should be governed and guided by your moral code. We thank you for Jesus. It is through faith in him that we're saved. But Lord, you've given us your word, all of it. 
that we might understand your character and nature and that we might be motivated to live holy, godly lives before you in response to what you've done for us, Lord. And so we thank you and we take to heart these words. We have not thought of these commandments as out-of-date, antiquated rules, but rather timeless truths for our lives to help shape us, our behavior, our speech, our attitudes. And Lord, we give you praise and thanks for who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Well, as I was prepping for this 10th commandment, you know, I didn't really have this intention for the calendar to collide here with the 10th commandment. But as I've been reflecting on the fact that here we are a week before Christmas, and often the true meaning of Christmas is overshadowed by all the materialism, how timely that we should be talking about not coveting, not coveting. Because let's just be real. Going to the mall is a trip down coveting lane. As you're walking the halls of the mall, every mannequin wearing every outfit, every electronic device is screaming at you and me. Buy me. You need me. Take me home. You can buy me today interest-free for three months. And then there's always this nagging whisper, and your neighbor already has me. Ah. What am I to do? My senses are bombarded with all that I should have and the stuff and the things and all the material objects. Oh, I can't get no satisfaction. I try and I try and I try and I try, but I can't get no satisfaction. Now, listen, I don't know if you realize, but that song by the Rolling Stones forget for the moment, put out of your mind uh, uh, Mick Jagger, 70-year-olds wearing spandex, but just for the moment, (laughs) come back because you may not realize that actually that song was originally about how we are bombarded with material things because we always are supposed to get the better and the best. Part of the words of that song go like this, when I'm driving in my car and a man comes on the radio, he's telling me more and more about some useless information supposed to fire my imagination. I can't get no satisfaction. Further down, when I'm watching my TV and a man comes on to tell me how white my shirts can be. And so the whole thing about the song originally was this idea that, and the media has done a brilliant job marketing the idea that we, especially as Americans, we need more than what we have. And if we have already what we have, we need the better of what we already have, the new and improved version Because better is best and more is best and it's awesome and just get the latest and the greatest. And that's what that's what not only the song is about, but that's honestly what this 10th commandment is warning us about. This insatiable need to always have to have the best, the latest, the greatest, the most. And especially when we look at what our neighbor has and our friends have. Oh, keeping up with the Joneses. That's what we need to be about. Now listen, as we get into this 10th commandment, I first want to make it clear. There's nothing wrong with having nice things. And there's nothing wrong with even desiring nice things. Please note this with me. God has placed certain good and right desires in our hearts. The Bible says in Psalm 37 verse 4, Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Now obviously if God had a problem with us having desires... He would not have said that in Psalm 37, 4. The 10th commandment is not a prohibition about having desires or even having nice things. Even in Psalm 103, verses 4 and 5. 
It says God redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion and that He satisfies your desires with good things. So God wants to give us good things. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of the heavenly lights, James tells us. So God is okay with us desiring good things and even having nice things. The fact of the matter is, in the Bible, there are different places where we read that we should actually desire certain things. 1 Corinthians 12, 31. It says in the NIV, earnestly desire spiritual gifts. God says we should want spiritual gifts. In fact, King James says, covet earnestly spiritual gifts. King James even uses the word covet. Not all coveting is wrong in the right context. In Proverbs 18, 22, it says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing or a husband. To want a godly wife or a godly husband is a good desire. As long as they're not somebody else's godly wife or godly husband. <laughs> you want your own, get your own. But it's a good desire. How about wanting to have children? First Samuel chapter 1, Hannah and her husband were unable to have children. She prayed. It was a desire of her heart. The Bible says in Psalm, uh, first, rather, First Samuel 1 verse 10, that in bitterness of soul, Hannah wept and she poured out her heart before the Lord. Because it was a, it was a good desire. She wanted to have kids. And God heard her prayer and answered her prayer. And, and in time, she and her husband were able to have a child. And she named him Samuel from the Hebrew Shema El, meaning God hears. Because God heard her prayer. God heard the heart of her desire to have a child. And he honored that in time. And she was able to conceive. So certain desires are certainly not only not wrong, but actually the Bible encourages us to have certain desires for good things. So when is it then that we violate the 10th commandment? Well, for you note takers, one of two ways. Number one, when we want or desire something that belongs to another... And there's no kind of transaction that's going to happen whereby we might be able to buy it. They have it. We want it. They're not interested in selling it. And we just crave and have a longing to get what they have. That's a violation. But in addition, number two, simply the want or desire something on the basis of greed, lust, jealousy, or envy. Any of those are wrong motivations and wrong reasons to want what we don't have. If there's envy, if there's greed, if there's lust, if there's jealousy, then those are wrong reasons to want what we don't have. Now look again with me here in Exodus 20, verse 17. I'm going to ask you to underline a few words because God is specific here. I don't think He intends this to be an exhaustive list of what we are not to covet, but He gives us a few places to start. And He says here in Exodus 20, 17, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. So you can underline or circle the word house. That's one thing that God was specific about. And then He says, You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Or you can insert husband there as well, so you can underline those words. Or his manservant or maidservant, you can underline those words. And God also says we're not to uh, covet his ox, underline ox, or donkey, underline donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So in other words, he says, just start here. Realize that there's some things that are wrong for us to covet. So this is how the Tenth Commandment goes, right? Oh, man. Look at their house. I love their house. It's so big. It's so gigantic. I, I want their house. They have more garages than I have bedrooms in my house. I want that house. I love that house. They have a great room in their house. Man, what's a great room? I want a great room. I guess actually I kind of do have a great room in my house now. It's that room I sit in and I think about how everybody else's house is nicer than mine. Great. 
You know what they have with their nice big house and a nice great room? They have a manservant and a maidservant. I want a manservant and a maidservant. Translation, a pool boy and a housekeeper. That's what I want. I want a pool boy and a housekeeper. Okay, forget the pool boy. Just give me the pool. I just want a pool. I'll skim my own pool. I'll clean my own pool filter. I just want a pool and a housekeeper. How nice. Somebody to come to my house, clean up after me, cook my meals, do my laundry. I'll name her Alice. It'll be great. I just want a manservant and a maidservant. And oh, look. Look at their spouse. The man speaks. Oh, man. Look at that wonderful wife that he has. She lets him go golfing anytime he wants. What a wonderful wife she is. No ball and chain there. Oh, man. What a nice wife. The woman. Oh, look at her husband. Oh, he is wonderful. He is both strong and sensitive. Oh, I love a strong and sensitive man, a man of steel and velvet. Look at him, and he meets all her emotional needs, and he helps out around the house. I want a cowboy with oven mitts. Oh, look at their ox and donkey. Oh, I'd love to have an ox and donkey like they have, a jag and a beamer. Oh, man, I love their, their ox and donkey parked in their garage. Wow. My ox has 140,000 miles on it. My donkey's always breaking down. They say just put high test in it. No, my donkey has serious gas problems. On and on it goes. We always want what we don't have. And everybody else, what they have is better than what we have. And I want you to note with me that this 10th commandment is different from all the other nine before it in one particular way. And that is that the previous nine deal with some action, behavior, or speech. But number 10 deals exclusively with your thought life and the attitude of your heart. Now, coveting can lead to outward behavior that would be sinful. But you can break the Tenth Commandment and never act on it. Because breaking the Tenth Commandment is about thoughts and attitude of the heart. It's about covetousness that grips our thought life and our hearts and causes us to become bitter and envious and jealous and discontent. And by the way, this is a healthy reminder to us that God is not simply interested in what we do or in what we say. He's interested in those things. But He's not just interested in what we do or what we say. He's also interested in what we think. And what we think. I know some Christians who like to say from time to time that God doesn't really care what we think as long as we don't act on it. Oh yes, He does. The Bible makes it clear. It's the reason why Paul said to the Corinthian church, we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Because he knows that there's some wicked, evil, envious, covetous, jealous, lustful thoughts that we entertain. And God says you are not to entertain those thoughts. You are to take captive those thoughts. You are to make them obedient to Christ. You are to honor God not only in how you behave, how you speak, but even in your thought life. Do you get this with me? This is what God calls us to. And He knows our thoughts. Nothing escapes Him. The Bible says in Psalm 94.11 that the Lord knows the thoughts of man. And in Psalm 139, verse 2 and 4, 
It says, you know, when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar before a word is on my tongue. You know it completely, O Lord. So nothing escapes the Lord. And he knows when our little sinful hearts are envious over what other people have and who other people are. And it is insatiable. A covetous heart is never satisfied because we're always wanting what we don't have. We're always wanting to be like who we aren't that we see in other people. And it is ever so subtle. Now, God has saved in some ways the best for last in the sense that the 10th commandment is in many ways the most challenging because think about it, the 10th commandment, if we violate it, actually can lead to the violation of other commandments. It is the basis for other sins. Consider, for example, Committing adultery, commandment number seven, often happens first because of a covetous thought. Adultery first begins in the thought life. Wanting someone that you're not entitled to because you're not married to that person first begins with a covetous thought. What about stealing? The eighth commandment. Stealing often begins with a covetous thought. The idea of wanting to take something that doesn't belong to you having a longing for something that somebody else has, and then stealing it. What about the sixth commandment? You shall not murder. Murder is not always an act of violence or an act of passion over the top. Sometimes murder is purely because of covetous thoughts. Somebody has something and you don't want them to have it, and so you kill them to get it, or because you want to have it, and so they have to die before you can get it. And all this, There's a lot of murders that happen because of covetous thoughts. So in some ways, we have to consider that this tenth is a very severe commandment because if we violate it, it can lead to other violations of other commandments. So God is challenging us here. Jesus talked about how covetousness was a part of the heart. We have to be warned and be aware about it. Mark 7, verses 21 to 22. He said, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness. Jesus was saying that these kind of things emanate from the heart of man, so we have to guard our thoughts, we have to guard the attitudes of our hearts, because covetousness is a silent killer. It often goes unnoticed before it's too late. We act on it before we're aware of our thought life. Paul even would say in Romans 7, 7, he said, I didn't even know what coveting was except that the law said, do not covet. Now, he was saying for two reasons. One, the aspect of the law is to bring us to Christ. The law doesn't save us. It is a guideline to challenge us, to motivate us to holy living, to understand the standard and the righteous requirement of God. But we're not saved by obeying the law. We're saved through faith in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for us. Now, because we love Jesus and for what he's done for us, we want to obey what God says in his word. Jesus said, I've not come to abolish the law, but that the law might be fulfilled through me. So in one aspect, Paul was saying, I didn't even know what coveting was until the law defined it for me. The same way you don't know what speeding is, except for there's a speed limit sign marker on the side of the road that tells you if you go over this number, you're speeding. And so it defines what is right and what is wrong. Paul says, I don't even know what coveting was, except that the law told me. But I think there's this other angle to what Paul is saying. He's saying also, I wasn't even aware of my own covetous heart. 
till the law started pointing it out to me and made me aware. Oh, yeah, 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 that's right. When I start wanting this guy's tunic and this guy's sandal and his ox and his donkey, when I start having envious desires for stuff that doesn't belong to me, that's coveting. And he became aware of it because of what God said in his word. Likewise, we need to become aware of this. Especially in our American culture where we are steeped in the media blitz about always wanting more and what we don't have and look what others have. And if you want to keep up with the Joneses, you should be just like them and have everything that they have. You don't even have to tell your kids this. They come home from school. They're like in kindergarten. They're like, I want the shoes that Johnny has. We can't afford Johnny's shoes. Yeah, but he has this really neat swoosh on it. I want the swoosh. Can't have the swoosh, honey. We're going to get you other shoes, but you can't. I want the swoosh. And calm down, kid. So, I mean, it's like already from a very young age, we're, we're inundated, especially in our culture, with wanting what everybody else has. And it is so subtle because here how, here's how it often works. In addition to the list that God's given us in verse 17, house, car, if you will, if you look at ox and donkey as honest modes of transportation in the day, if you look at somebody's husband or wife, okay, we understand these things. And we shouldn't covet those things. But what about some of the intangibles? What about when we covet their job? What if we covet their success? What if we covet their talents? We're guilty also of coveting good looks. We covet their physique or their figure. We, we covet their title. We covet the letters after their name. We covet their success. We covet their money. We covet And we're often not even aware of it. Because covetousness always says, who I am and what I have is not good enough. That's the lie of covetousness. Who I am and what I have is just not good enough. And it's very, very destructive. Let me give you an example in the Bible of somebody that was completely destroyed by the sin of covetousness. Would you leave Exodus and go a few books over to the right to the book of Joshua chapter 6? I want you to see this story with me in your Bibles. So just keep going. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then Joshua. You'll land at Joshua a few books over. Chapter 6. We'll start there at chapter 6. And here's a story leading up to this. Let me just frame the context here in Joshua chapter 6. You have the Israelites. They have finished their 40 years of wilderness wandering through the Egyptian Sinai Peninsula. They're on their way into the Promised Land. They're going to cross the Jordan River going from east to west. And one of the things that God says to them is, Now, I'm going to be with you and I'm going to give you victory. You're going to encounter uh, some uh, uh, enemies that you're going to have to fight. And the first city you're going to have to take is the city of Jericho. And he says, But listen now. This first city belongs to me. So when you defeat Jericho, the Lord is saying this through Joshua to the people of Israel. I want you to take the plunder and I want you to set it aside as devoted unto me, the Lord is saying. Because I want you to give the first fruits to me, the rest of the plunder of other cities you can have as you establish your nation. uh, But this first belongs to me. God gave these instructions here. Joshua chapter 6, verse 17. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things. In other words, the things that are devoted to the Lord, the plunder. 
Keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. So this is the instruction. But there's one guy among the Israelites. His name is Achan. We'll call him mistaken Achan. (laughs) Achan makes a big mistake. He decides to help himself to some of the plunder, but he knows it's wrong. So what do people do when they take what they know they shouldn't? They hide it. They hide it. And the Israelites experience setbacks in this battle with the people of Jericho. And as they are inquiring of the Lord, why are we experiencing defeat here? The Lord shows Joshua that somebody has violated my orders, my command to not touch the devoted things. Well, how are you going to decide who the guy is who's guilty? Well, this is what God does. He systematically gives Joshua discernment to sort through and to systematically eliminate. Israel was divided into 12 tribes. And within each tribe, there were clans. And within each clan, there were families. And within each family, there were individuals. And through systematic elimination, God begins to speak to the heart of Joshua to bring all the tribes before him. And he whittles it down to the tribe of Judah. And on and on down, it goes to Achan. Individually, Look further here. Chapter 7, verse 1. It says, But the Israelites acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of them, so the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Jump over to verse 16. It says, Early the next morning, Joshua had Israel come forward by tribes, and Judah was taken. The clans of Judah came forward, and he took the Zerahites. He had the clan of the Zerahites come forward by families, and Zimri was taken. Joshua had his family come forward man by man, and Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Now, your attention for a moment before I read further. Why is it that God went through this lengthy process of eliminating tribes, clans, families to get down to one individual? God could have just shown a light on one guy and say, this is the dude, he's the one who's guilty. i tell you the reason why God took his sweet time doing it tribe by tribe, clan by clan, family by family, individual by individual, because he's giving Achan, the guilty party, a chance to come clean. He's giving Achan the opportunity to say, wait a minute, before you go any further, I'm the guilty person. And I'm convinced that God would have had mercy on him. But Achan didn't. He stood there watching this whole thing unravel before him, this process of elimination, kept his mouth shut until it gets down to him. And the Lord gives Joshua discernment. This is the guy. He's the guilty one. Well, now he fesses up, but it's going to be too late. Look at verse 19. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give him the praise. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Achan replied, it is true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, notice, I coveted them and took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent, and there it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from the tent, 
brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites and spread them out before the Lord. Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold wedge, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys and sheep, his tent and all that he had to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him, and after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. Over Achan they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore, that place has been called the Valley of Achor ever since. Achor in Hebrew means trouble. And what you notice, God gave this guy an opportunity to repent. He did not, so he suffered the consequence. And the consequence for covetousness, while an extreme example is a reminder to us the devastating consequences when we covet. It destroys our lives. It destroys us. Because at the core of covetousness, the core of covetousness says that I am ungrateful for what I have and I am envious about what others have. That's the core of covetousness. I'm ungrateful for what I have and I envy what others have. And it's an offense to God. It's an offense to God. And we begin to convince ourselves, we believe the lie that if I only had this, if I only looked like that, if I only could achieve this, if I only had what, then you'd be happier? Because when you listen to some of the stories of some people who have this and that, some famous people and, and athletes and professionals and movie stars and people who win the lottery, you often find that those things that are this and that are not really what bring happiness. Listen to what Boris Becker said. He was at the top of his career, a tennis pro who won Wimbledon a few times, the youngest player to ever win Wimbledon in the height of his career in the 1980s. He also felt suicidal. And he said this, quote, I had won Wimbledon twice before, once as the youngest player. I was rich. I had all the material possessions I needed. It's the old song of movie stars and pop stars who commit suicide. They have everything, and yet they are so unhappy, end quote. But if I just looked a certain way, we'll listen to Halle Berry very beautiful woman, an actress and a movie star. She said this, and a model, I should say. She said this, quote, Beauty, let me tell you something. Being thought of as a beautiful woman has spared me nothing in life. No heartache, no trouble. Life has been difficult. Beauty is essentially meaningless, and it is always transitory, end quote. Consider the words of Tiger Woods. He said, quote, Money and fame made me believe I was entitled. I was wrong and foolish. Hear it from those who have and realize getting more, having the best, bigger, is not always better. It's not always better. Covetousness in many ways is like a tree, if you will, that grows out of control. And there are five main roots that nourish the tree of covetousness. We've been talking about them. Envy, jealousy, greed, lust, and plain old discontentment. Those are the roots that nourish the tree of covetousness. And those are the things to which we must put the axe. If we're going to effectively deal with covetousness in our lives, we have to deal with the root of covetousness. We have to deal with envy in our hearts. We have to deal with jealousy in our hearts. We have to deal with greed and lust and discontentment. Now, I'm just going to give you a quick verse for each of these as we 
move our way through the end of this Bible study. But in regards to envy, 1 Peter 2.1. 1 Peter 2.1. The Bible says, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. The directive from the Lord is, get rid of it. We have to uproot it. We have to recognize envy for what it is in our hearts. And we have to uproot it. Jealousy. Jealousy is listed among the sinful nature of things in Galatians 5, verse 20. And in Galatians 5, 16, it says, Live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. God says the remedy for dealing with things like jealousy is to live more according to the Spirit. In other words, the deeper we walk with Christ, the more effective we will be in resisting things like jealousy and envy. Our relationship with the Lord, if we feed that, it will help to starve those other things in our lives that are destructive. When it comes to greed, Jesus said in Luke 10, sorry, Luke 12, 15, He said, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And if you really want to break the stronghold of greed in your life, consider some advice by the 18th century preacher John Wesley, who said this, earn all you can, save all you can, give all you can. Have a good, strong work ethic, make all you can, save all you can, give all you can. It'll break the grip of greed in your life. What about lust? Well, the Bible has a lot to say about it. Romans 13, 14, for example, says, Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Again, the emphasis is the more we clothe ourselves with Jesus, the more we press into Him, the more we go deeper in our walk with the Lord, the greater resistance we will have to those kind of temptations like lust, discontentment. Oh man, it is a common thing that many of us deal with. Paul said this in Philippians 4, 11 to 13. He said, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through Christ who gives me the strength. The emphasis he places is being content in the Lord. Because there are going to be times you have plenty, there are going to be times that you lack, but yet if our confidence and our trust and our hope is in the Lord, then we, be, we can be content in Him. Now, just a quick qualification here. When we say contentment, and we talk about coming against the covetousness of the 10th commandment that warns us about it, we are not suggesting that contentment means laziness. And contentment means lack ambition and lack the idea of achievement. There's nothing wrong with achievement and ambition and success. And again, as we talked about at the top of the study, having desires and having nice things. Within the right context, all those things are right. Within the wrong context, any of those things can enslave us. But what the Lord is telling us through this 10th commandment is basically this, that it is a call to finding your identity and your contentment in Christ. Your identity and your contentment in Christ. To be satisfied where, with where God has you for now. And to work hard for where God might take you later. And that we should rest in Him. That we should not be comparing ourselves with others, looking at what they have or who they are, and longing to have what they have or longing to be like they are. 
but instead to taking hold of the greatest prize entrusted to us, which is knowing Christ and making Him known. That there needs to be this sense of resolve that God is good and I'm content with who He is in my life and that I always want to please Him and I always want to strive to do my best. Nothing wrong with achievement and success and ambition, but in the right context that we should never allow those things to enslave us with an insatiable lust for more. God is good to us. And he says in 1 Timothy 6.6, Godliness with contentment is great gain. May it be so for us. Amen. We worship you, Lord, with our lips and with our lives, that you would be glorified and honored. We give you praise and thanks in the house of the Lord. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen and Amen.